Please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. This is God's word. Well, Advent is here, and the Christmas story is going to be told over and over again throughout this season. And some think of it as a heartwarming story to be read alongside the night before Christmas. But is it more than that? Is it a fact? Is it fiction? For over a decade, billboards across the nation have denied the historicity of Christ. One billboard pictured a, a young girl wearing a Santa hat, writing a letter with the message, Dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is to skip church. I'm too old for fairy tales. Another giant side sign featured an image of Santa Claus next to the same size image of Jesus on the cross and said, Keep the Mary, dump the myth. Another read, you know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. And still another said, just skip church. It's fake news. It's easy to understand why people might believe it's fake news. The incredible story of God coming to earth, living among us, dying on the cross, raising from the dead, and now offering us a new life and eternal life is, sounds just too good to be true. <clears throat> but just because it sounds too good to be true doesn't mean it isn't. Our passage this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, who is a physician and a historian. The first verses of his book inform us that he did meticulous research from first-hand accounts, to make sure that the story he writes is accurate. I'm going to read from uh, the opening verses in Luke chapter 1. I'm reading from the Living Bible Translation. 
It says, Dear friend who loves God, that's a translation of the name Theophilus to whom Luke addresses them. Several biographies of Christ have already begun, have already been written using as their source material the reports circulating among us from the early disciples and other eyewitnesses. However, it's occurred to me that it'd be well to recheck all these accounts from the first to the last and after thorough investigation to pass this summary on to you to reassure you of the truth of all that you were taught. Luke wrote the book to assure us that what he writes is true. That opening doesn't sound like someone creating a fictional tale. It's understandable why people might question these stories about Jesus that were written two millennia ago. But if we take the words of any historians who've done thorough research, confirmed first-hand accounts, then we should consider the words of Luke himself. He was very thorough in his research. He desired to know the truth and to communicate it. The same as Paul of, of Matthew and John. They were disciples of Jesus. They were first-hand witnesses. And Mark, tradition tells us, wrote the gospel through Peter's eyes. This Advent, we're going to be walking through the birth story of Jesus. And we begin with the birth of John the Baptist, but in particular, what occurs right after that birth where Zechariah praises God and prophesies. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you meet us this morning with your spirit, for your word is the sword of the spirit. But your word without the spirit will not open up our hearts. Lord, open up our hearts precisely where we are. For those who doubt the reality of this story, I pray that they might consider the words this morning. For we who are caught in day-to-day -day living, may we be refreshed by the, this prophecy and all that Jesus Christ brings us. Teach us this morning. Amen. The Old Testament concluded with these words in the book of Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. After these words, God went silent for almost 500 years. Century after century passed until... Zechariah, one of the priests, went into the temple. An angel came to him and prophesied that he, the aged and childless Zechariah, along with his wife, would have a child. And this is what the angel said. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son 
and you'll call his name John. And you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Do you hear the echoes of Malachi in these words? God's story picks up where Malachi left off. This child, John, would fulfill his prophecy by coming in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the nation for the coming of the Messiah. And Luke continues the story of John's birth, which culminates in the passage that we're going to look at today. We're going to see that this story seems too good to be true. But we're going to look at it, and we're going to see that it is true. And that'll be our first point. And the second point, we'll be looking at that which seems to be good true. What is it that Jesus brings us? So we open in verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. God's presence is woven throughout these words. The prophecy is steeped in Scripture itself. These words are not merely Zechariah's words. They're the very voice of God speaking to us. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he prophesied. The voice of God was speaking through him. Now, people may not have the same opinion of Jesus that Zechariah presents, but not all opinions are equal. If God has spoken, truth isn't a matter of personal perspective. Words like this are either true or they're mistaken. And if they're true, then God has spoken and he has spoken through Scripture. And if he has spoken, then Scripture is right. And any personal or cultural view that clashes with it is wrong. If God's has spoken, then those who build their lives on God's word are building on a rock. And everyone else is building their lives on sand. The first question we have to ask ourselves when we discuss philosophies, moral values, purpose in life, the pathway to God, the avenues to fulfillment, the first question is, has God spoken? If he hasn't, then we're all left up to our own thinking, our own philosophies. In each generation, those change like shifting sand. In each generation, thinks they've reached the epitome of truth, only to have the next generation come along and say, no, we have found the truth. We know what's right and wrong. We know how you should think until the next generation says the same thing. But if God has spoken, that truth never changes. 
Instead of building on shifting sand, we build on a rock. So the fact that God spoke in is supported by Zechariah's next words in verses 68 through 70. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Zechariah points to the authenticity of the Old Testament prophets. These words describing the Messiah were promised by the prophets who all spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Peter, after Peter talks about going to the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Jesus transfigured before him and hearing the voice of God, Peter then says this, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to look at Peter's experience and then his talking about the prophets because he gives more credence to the prophets than his own personal experience. Even though he saw Jesus transformed, he heard God's voice audibly, he still says, it's really confirmed by the Old Testament prophets. Now, not many of us would say something like that today. We always point to our own personal experience, our own personal experience. But Peter says, no, there's something greater. It's the words of the prophets. Because he knew they spoke not from their own personal perspectives, but they spoke the very words of God. The consistency of Scripture bears this out. Forty human authors wrote over a period of 1,500 years a book that is perfectly consistent over the many, many pages. It gives us one grand story as if one author wrote it in one sitting. And that's because one author wrote it through the prophets, and that was God. Look at the consistency. The scripture opens with a new creation. It closes with a new creation because the first one had fallen. The beginning, humans are placed in a paradise. In the end, we once again are in a paradise. Yet, in between, sin has ravaged our world and our lives. But in that, God immediately promises a Redeemer. A Redeemer who will make all things right. So the people continue to fail. God brings judgment. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. Languages, the the flood comes because the whole earth is filled with sin. Languages are created so that the people disperse into the world because they're disobeying God again at the Tower of Babel. 
The Jewish people have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they're complaining in disobedience to God. And then the Jewish nation is sent into captivity for 40 years into Babylon again because they will not follow God. But throughout this, there is that promise. While we fail, God will bring a Redeemer. He will take the judgment. He is the horn of salvation who's going to come to us. The horn speaks of power. It's animals that have horns rush at us with their horns at any enemy. That's their power. The most powerful people are the kings. So this is a prophecy that the Messiah will come. He will be the king. He will sit on the throne of David, which was promised to David, that one with one of his kin would sit on the throne forever. And he is a king who brings salvation. While Zechariah's praise and prophecy is related to John's birth, his excitement is about bearing John, the prophecy is really all about Jesus and the fact that John is to be the forerunner to prepare the people for Jesus. This Messiah was the fulfillment of the dreams that Israel had for generations. So, what were those dreams? What is the good that Jesus offers us? Now, this passage gives us many of them. So, let's think for a moment of Israel's dreams as similar to our Christmas wish list. Except the difference is, this isn't merely a wish list of Israel. It's a hope that becomes a certainty because God promised it would come to pass. So what do you have on your Christmas list? So most of us are pretty main, mundane. You know, it might be uh, I want a new sweater, a particular book, a pair of socks, a toaster oven, or the latest and greatest toy. Other wishes are a little more grandiose, like uh, I'll have a new car. I think a lot of the commercials show us that those seem to be given at a lot of Christmases uh, or a new house. But then there's others who are more magnanimous. They wish for world peace, and the end of famines, wars, and pandemics. Israel's wish with list would be more like the latter one, magnanimous, that they had desires for the nation and the healing of the nation and for the blessing of the world. Now, let's call this not just the wish list, let's call it the hope list. Because hope speaks of a certainty, not just a wish. Something that will come to pass. And so, in our passage, we see five hopes that Jesus is going to fulfill. Now, if we look at his life, there's a whole treasure chest of what Christ offers us. But we're going to center on the five that are in this passage. The first is safety. You know, today Israel is threatened by despots who pledge their annihilation or terrorists who seek to dislodge the Jewish people from their land. This is nothing new. This is continuation of the history of Israel being targeted. They were overrun by the Assyrians, taken captive by the Chaldeans, 
overrun by the Seleucids, and during Zechariah's day, they had been captured by the Romans. And they waited for the fulfillment of the promises that Zechariah now says will be fulfilled by this Messiah. We read, As God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers. They'd be saved from their enemies. This is akin to a wish list we might have for the cessation of wars, for world peace being granted. Imagine a people under constant attack who hear the words, you will be saved. We will be saved from our enemies. Sense the security they must have felt that God had made this promise. You know, but it's fair to ask the question, if uh, this child came to bring this safety, why is Israel still under attack today? One of the reasons for that is because there are two comings of Jesus. The Old Testament prophets only saw one. It's like us looking at a, a mountain in the distance and seeing this one singular magnificent mountain. But as we draw closer and closer and closer, we realize we get to a first mountain and that there's a valley between and there's another mountain, a second mountain. But it all looked at, well, as one from a distance. And so too, Jesus has two comings. The first frees us spiritually. The second frees us physically and frees and will fulfill God's promise to Israel. Jesus will bring a new world order. His first coming offers us a new spiritual order. But in addition, one can make the case that Jesus didn't fulfill the promise in his first coming to Israel because they rejected him. The promise of safety might have been realized if they had received the Messiah. We see this in Jesus' words when he prays to God over Jerusalem and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If they had received Jesus, he would have gathered them under his wings, but they did not. Looking at what Jesus has accomplished at his first coming in the spiritual realm gives us confidence that he'll fulfill his promises when he comes again. Promises such as Isaiah 2, where it says, He will judge between the nations, shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. World peace. A dream. Apparent fantasy, but it won't be. 
when Christ returns. A second, another hope for the Jewish people was God's fulfillment of the promises to Abraham that they would be a blessing to the world. Who wouldn't want to have a legacy? We all think about our legacies, what we leave behind. And we want to leave things behind for our children and maybe our community. Well, what about having a legacy that touches the world? That's what God offers the Jewish people. They didn't seem to be touching the world, but they will through Jesus. For century after century, people spurned God and they went their own way. They weren't awakened by God's judgment, whether it was the judgment on Adam and Eve or the judgment through the flood or the judgment of mixing languages. The world kept disobeying God. And so God decided on another plan. And that is to take one person to make a great nation and that nation would be a light to the world to see the true God. That nation would be a blessing to the world. And so he chose a man named Abraham and he made this promise, this covenant with him in Genesis chapter 12. I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Whereas Israel, like every one of us, has failed, one of Abraham's descendants would bring a blessing beyond comprehension. At Jesus' dedication, Simeon, been waiting for the Messiah, saw Jesus, realized that he was the true Messiah, he took Jesus into his arms, and by the Holy Spirit he said, my eyes have seen your salvation, Lord, that you prepared in the presence of people a light for the, of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Capture those last words. Jesus is the glory of Israel. He's God's gift to the world through the Jewish people. And sad today that the glory of Israel is rejected by so many people of Israel. But he's also the light to the Gentiles, a light to the world. He's the blessing that Abraham was promised. A third hope we could add to our Christmas list is that of the elimination of fear. What would your life be like if fear was eliminated? No clouds would ever hang over your head. No sense of doom would darken any day. No threats would change your ways. We see this promise in Zechariah's words. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Well, this promise talks about fear being relieved because the enemies are gone so that they can now serve God in holiness and righteousness. 
we can also look at the spiritual significance of this that comes to all of us through Jesus Christ's first coming. He can deliver us from every one of our fears. He delivers us from the fear of punishment. 1 John 4 says, Perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. We believers in Christ don't have to fear punishment because Jesus took the punishment we deserve. He can deliver us from the fear of death. As he promised to his disciples before he departed, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God also. Believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And he can deliver us from the fear of persecution, as Peter wrote in chapter 3 of his first book. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Those who are in Jesus Christ need not fear punishment from God, need not fear anything that man can bring us. The best gift of all in this is our salvation, which comes through the forgiveness of sins. We see in verses 77 and 78. He's come to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercies of God. The most important question any of us should be asking is, where will I spend eternity? We might live for 100 years here on earth, but that is passing shadow. Yes, our earthly lives are significant, but they're nothing compared to what God has to offer in eternity. They are simply the stepping stone to eternity, the preparation for it. Remember the final verses, the final verse of Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, there's no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We get caught up in this world, and you, rightly so in many ways. But eternity should be in our hearts. What we see in these words mirrored in John's 3.16, the tender mercies of God for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have salvation, will have eternal life. You know, see, we're all on a path to perdition because of our sin, our rebellion, our spiritual adultery. Since God is holy and just, we all deserve condemnation. And God must judge us if he's going to be true to his own character. But out of his tender mercies, out of his love, he sent his son to take our punishment, the punishment we deserve for our sins. And because he has done that, we can appropriate forgiveness from God through our faith in him and trust in him. Jesus took our place to bear the judgment we ought to bear so that we can escape that judgment, be forgiven, 
and have eternal life. This is the best gift of all. But how much do we really appreciate it today? Sometimes I think we underappreciate it because we hear it so often. What an incredible story. What a gift he's given us, eternity with him. Reflect on it often this Christmas. The final gift in Israel's stocking in this passage is the light that Jesus shines. Whereby the sun shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. The promise is that Messiah will bring light from heaven itself. He'll offer divine insights, divine understanding, divine perspectives. Light has come through Jesus Christ while we live in darkness. Apart from God, we are severely limited in seeing life as it should be because of the darkness, the darkness that's in all of our hearts, the selfishness that rules us, the limited perspective because we're tied to earth. Needing to have a purpose, we make up our own purposes that have no grounding in anything. While we desire truth, we defer to the voices that say truth is relative. Our moral values are tossed to and fro by every wind of cultural thought. But Jesus brings light into the world. He brings us the rock to stand on. Like a blind man feeling only one part of an elephant and concluding that an elephant is a rope or a tree trunk or a wall or a snake, our insights only see a part of life itself. Jesus sees, sees the whole picture and brings it to us. He points us to a divine purpose. He speaks of values grounded in its creator and declares a truth that is certain. And he gives light in the darkness of death by overcoming the grave. And he guides our path in path to he guides our feet into peace. He's a light that shines. He shows the way of peace itself. Now, the word peace here is shalom. It's referencing this, the Jewish shalom. And Jewish shalom. It's not just a restfulness. It's a realization of life. It's an experience of life as it was meant to be. That's what the light of Jesus shines us. We hear so many voices around us and it leaves us in darkness until we hear that one voice of Jesus Christ who can lead and guide the way. Jesus is our light in darkness. He is the way the truth, and the life. So what's your Christmas wish? Jesus is better than any wish you could ever make. The Christmas story is, seems too good to be true, but it is true. You know, earlier in the sermon I said that if God has spoken 
we should understand what he has said and align our lives with it. There's two main errors today. First, there are those who think God hasn't spoken. The Christmas story is fake news. Second, there are those who intellectually think that God has spoken, that Christmas story is real news, but they don't align their lives with it. Let's accept the preponderance of evidence and accept the fact that God has spoken. The Christmas story is true news, and let's align our lives with it. Let's make this season about Jesus. Let's bow before him like the shepherds and the magi. Let's declare his good news like the shepherds did and shower him with gifts like the magi did. Let's shower him with gifts of love and obedience, service, and most importantly, the transformation of our lives so that we might reflect the character of Christ and become reflected lights of Christ shining into a world that's in darkness. For Jesus, the light of the world has come. Jesus, the hope of the world, was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Father, these words are so meaningful to, to us. For we live in a world that needs Jesus' salvation. We need his light. We need his hope. We thank you that you sent your son to provide all of those for us. And Lord, we think of a world that has these needs. May we cherish those around us so much that we pray this, this, this day for open doors to share the true message of Jesus this Christmas. Amen.